Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Title Block Live for July 9th, 2020. I am your host, Michael Cruz, and this week I join the Associated Designers of Canada in sponsoring tonight's panel discussion on supporting BIPOC casts with your design. As usual, this will be released on the podcast stream for the Title Block, uh, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and your favorite podcatching app, where you will find interviews with Canadian theater designers about their history and their craft. Go to thetitleblock.com for more information, uh, and information on tonight's sponsor, the Associated Designers of Canada, can be found at designers.ca. Now, let me introduce you to tonight's panel. Before I do that, I'm just going to make sure I, uh, everything is going well. Yes. Excellent. All right. Originally from Mexico City, costume designer Carmen Alatore earned her MFA degree in theater design at UBC and has worked uh, as a theater designer in Vancouver since 2006. Her recent work has been seen on the stages of the Arts Club Theater, Bard on the Beach, Globe Theater, Regina, uh, Royal Manitoba Theater Center, and the Citadel Theater. Carmen is a recipient of three Jesse Richardson Theater Awards. And for more information, you can find her at CarmenElatore.com. Carmen, welcome to the Title Block Live. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. CJ Astronomo is a freelance lighting designer originally from Takaranto who has worked across Turtle Island, Australia, and New Zealand. She is currently fortunate to be working as an associate technical director at the Stratford Festival. CJ, welcome to the Title Block Live. Maganda Gabe. Good evening. My name is CJ. I am a Filipina settler currently living in Woodstock, Ontario. Salamat. Thank you. Excellent. Seven Chen is a Taiwanese-Canadian immigrant and queer artist of color who is an interdisciplinary artist, director, designer, performer, mentor in film, sound, art, new media, and performance. He has worked with Troika Ranch, Christopher Doyle, and is being featured on CBC Arts and a BenQ commercial. He's an official instructor of Isadora and artistic director of Chimerick Collective. Sammy, welcome to the Title Block Live. Thank you. Thank you everyone for having me. I'm connecting you all virtually from Vancouver, uh, the Coast on city land. Excellent. Sound designer Deanna Choi is a recovering violinist with a background in behavioral neuroscience. Her latest project is designing the sound of her kitchen production of Into the Woods, starring her KitchenAid stand mixer, Matilda. Deanna, welcome back to the Tuttle Block Live. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am a second generation Korean settler and currently residing in Tecoronto. Excellent. Set and costume designer Rachel Forbes is an award-winning Toronto-based set and costume designer. I said that twice. She creates for theater, dance, opera, and film all across the country. You can find her work at rachelforbesdesign.com. Rachel, welcome back to the Title Block Live. Thanks for having me. This is great. I'm a many generations Canadian and Trinidadian and Jamaican. Terrific. Camila Koo is a set and costume designer for theater, opera, dance, and site-specific installations. She especially loves being part of the process of working on new work. Cami, welcome to the Title Block Live. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Chinese Canadian and based in Toronto. Excellent. Sage Paul is an award-winning artist and designer and a recognized leader of Indigenous fashion, craft, and textiles. Sage is also a founding collective member and artistic director of Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto. Her art and design practice is conceptual, creating narrative-driven garments, crafts, and costumes for artistic presentation, fashion, film, TV, and theater. Sage, welcome to the Title Block Live. Hi everyone, thanks for uh, having me. I'm here in Toronto. I'm Dennis Duplinay, um, as well as I think 
fifth generation Canadian on my mom's side. And I've been in Toronto for a long time. <laughs> Terrific. And Kimberly Patel is an award-winning Toronto-based lighting designer for theater, opera, and dance. She's had the opportunity to, opportunity to design across the country and internationally. Kim, welcome back to the Title Block Live. Thank you for having me. I'm a white settler of English, Scottish, and Jewish background. Thank you. Emily Susanna is a projection set and lighting designer based out of Jajaje or Montreal. They are the co-founder of Potato Cakes Digital, a production design and digital arts collective whose mandate orbits around the integration of technology into traditional art forms and the exploration of how visual art can help facilitate the telling of a story. Emily, welcome back to the Title Block Live. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a white descendant of Scottish-Irish immigrants on my mother's side and Jewish immigrants from uh, France and Morocco on my father's side. Awesome. And finally, Michelle Ramsey is an award-winning Toronto-based lighting designer who works with dance, theater, and opera companies across the country. She's also on the board of the Associated Designers of Canada, who is co-sponsoring tonight's event. Michelle Ramsey, welcome back to the Title Block Live, and I will give it over to you to moderate tonight's panel. Great. Thanks so much, Michael. Uh, hi there, I'm Michelle. I'm a queer white settler from Jewish and Scottish background. Uh, as Michael said, I'm also a lighting designer and your moderator for today. Uh, I'm speaking from Toronto on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat, and more recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. I am grateful to live and work on this land. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you to the Title Block and Michael Cruz for hosting this important discussion and to the Associated Designers of Canada for providing some funding. I would also like to thank Connor Moore and Michelle Cutler for their support putting the panel together. Um, so the title of this panel is Supporting BIPOC Casts with Your Design. Before we start, I just want to say a little bit about where this panel came from. Um, today's particular discussion is something that has been brewing for a very long time. It was born out of years fielding questions about what gel color or tricks I use to light various skin tones. I've also had a few requests to talk about this in my capacity uh, on the Professional Development Committee at the ABC. And then the In the Dressing Room hashtag and the Stratford Black Like Me and We Are All Standing Strong panels came, up, uh, came out as well as many others in the past few weeks. I am very grateful for those that shared their stories and re-traumatized themselves. Um, we are in a time of long overdue change in theater and we need to ensure that design is part of that change. Canadian theater design is extremely white and the support systems are all extremely white. I wanna talk about this and we will talk about it in future discussions in the coming months. I want to acknowledge that this is a very small step we're taking and that this is the beginning of a conversation that will continue. Um, so today we'll talk about some concrete tactics, practical help for designers who may have felt lost or powerless in their work. We won't shy away from issues that we've had or we've seen. All of our panelists have different lived experiences and there will be space to speak to that. Uh, it's also extremely important that when we discuss BIPOC performers that we understand that they are not just objects to light or dress or wig and that we don't presume what they need or what they want and that we listen and that we listen with respect and dignity and embrace them as full collaborators. We won't have all the answers today, but we need to start this conversation and we will make mistakes and we will feel uncomfortable and that is okay because this is not easy work. Uh, and so on that note, I encourage you all to send me feedback. I wanna hear it all, good, bad and everything. I, I'd like suggestions for upcoming topics that you'd like to see, panelists, moderators that you would like to hear from. 
And if you want to send money to support these initiatives, it will all go back to the artists and moderators who will speak on future panels. You can contact me at mentorship at designers.ca. Um, so we have a lot to discuss today, uh, and we probably won't get through it all, but uh, if there's time for questions, um, Connor Moore is, uh, and Michael are moder uh, monitoring the YouTube chat, so please send your questions. Um, thank you all panelists for being here today to be amongst such an incredible group of people. Um, thank you for sharing your experiences and your knowledge. Um, so the first question I want to ask is uh, sort of a practical question. And this could be for any discipline. Um, as a lighting designer, I often get asked what gel colors are good for darker skin. And knowing this isn't as simple as picking a magic gel color and that there are many factors that go into choosing certain concepts and ideas. I'm wondering if um, you could offer some specific tools or advice for when you're working with BIPOC performers. Um, things that you may get asked by colleagues or students and any sort of gaps that you've noticed in um, education. Anyone can start. Uh, I'll, I'll start. Um, uh, I remember when I was a young uh, starting out lighting designer and uh, full disclosure, I didn't train as a lighting designer, I trained as a director and learned about light. And um, one of, within the first 10 shows that I was doing, I was doing a show with Native Earth here in Toronto and um, the lovely Muriel Miguel, who is an incredible woman, said to me, whatever you do, put R33 as front light. And so we had this lovely discussion about pigment in people's skin and how uh, making sure I would never use amber. Now, I hate amber just in general, so that's helpful. And, um, and it was an interesting thing because as a young designer at the time, I was um, still, still to this day, you know, always trying to figure out what gel color do I use? What gel color don't I use? It was an interesting, but it was a very, very interesting conversation. And at the time, back in 2000 and I don't know, one or something, um, the 300 series of Roscoe colors had come out and I'm like, and I'm going to try this R333 and see what that looks like. And I did. And, um, and I tried that along with her suggestion, sort of half and half of the stage. I was trying to see how, how that would work. And she was like, what's that color? And she's like, I like that color. Um, it's less pink. Anyways, um, it was an interesting, um, uh, a discussion with uh, uh, between her and I just about color and we continued that discussion because we used a lot of color in the show that we were working on and one of the next shows I worked on was the show at the Factory Theatre here in Toronto and the um, costume designer had said to me um, should I tee down that shirt um, for the there was two uh, female white actors in the show and one male black actor in the show and I said no don't do it and she said why and I said because we're sitting here in a rehearsal hall with fluorescent lights and I'm trying to figure out what um, colors exist in each person's skin there's no point to tee down somebody's shirt just because their skin is darker let's see how I can work with it because um, especially in the factory theater where people are about four feet away you go well 
she's designed a white shirt. Can we do a white shirt? And, uh, you know, the teed down, teed down at factory theater means the shirt is beige, not white. And so, um, and so we were working together and, um, and what I found out, and this was like maybe my 11th show that I'd ever designed. Um, I, I understood the difference between people who have skin that reflects light versus sucks light. And there are people who absorb light versus reflect light. And, um, and then I started to play with, because I, I you know, um, I had heard from designers who were much older than me, well, you just choose the color based on the majority of people in the show. And to me, that seemed completely wrong. Like, how can you just, well, let's make these people look good and let's ignore these people. And so I really started to pay attention to the undertones of, you know, uh, the undertones of everyone's skin and how is it that I can choose color and mix color, choose a variety of colors to light everyone on the stage. And it was very, very, very early on in my career um, that I started to do that. And, and it was about the balance and, and it's not about, in, in my opinion, it's, it's not about level. It's about finding the colors that light the entire cast, mixing those colors within the right levels. Um, sometimes I always over order color because so many rehearsal halls are lit with fluorescent lights and you're not really having an understanding of um, what anyone's skin is made up of under that horrible, harsh, top green light that, that is often what fluorescent light does. So I often over order colors so I can change things out. Um, and, uh, and I have found over time, uh, there is no, for me, there is no magic formula. Um, it is about um, having the flexibility once I get everyone under incandescent light, or sometimes you're in a situation where you're now only using LEDs and mixing color yourself, but how to ser serve and best um, and best serve and represent all the colors of skin on stage. And just because um, there might be, let's say, if we had CJ and Deanna on stage together, even though their undertones are similar, how each of their skin tones uh, responds to light is completely different. So it's about taking the time and, um, and experimenting because you probably aren't going to get it right the first time. Um, but you can't, um, the, the old school idea of, of light, the majority of the people on stage just made my brain explode out of my head and, and, uh, and go, no, there's obviously a much better way to do this. So for me, that's how I sort of go about it. Thanks, Kim. I can speak a little bit about as a costume designer. Um, uh, one thing I, is just doing my homework and researching who the performers are that I'm going to be working with um, as the first step when I get hired to do a show, if they know the cast. Um, it's so easy to find people's headshots online and it's just to even just get to know who they are, body shapes, 
um, even just as simple as that. Um, and then wherever possible, it's not always possible, especially in the bigger theaters or especially in opera, um, actually meeting the performers. Ideally, it'd be great if I could meet the perform. Like in an ideal world, I would love to meet the actors and the singers before I'd set pencil to paper doing a costume drawing, um, just to meet them. And that's also, that's hardly ever uh, the case where I can do that. Um, but then the next best choice is to actually chat with them in fittings. That's one tool I use in fittings is actually having options in fittings, asking for their input, which I don't think designers do enough. Um, asking for performers input. Ultimately, I'm still the designer. I still make the final choice, but I want their opinion. I want them to be comfortable and I want them to feel comfortable to tell me if they're not for any reason. Um, that's just an approach that I've been using and try to keep doing um, as a costume designer. For set, it's the same thing. It's um, doing my research and talking to people because no matter how much um, research I do in books or Google, I'm never gonna get the details and the nuances of a particular community or culture that I'm not part of. So if I can talk to the playwright, if I can talk to people in the cast, nobody should be off limits to talk to as a collaborator on a show. That's sort of just my feeling. Um, so they are, the, they are the sort of the best resources I have because um, I'm never going to get those nuances. Um, so knowing that and being respectful of that and sensitive to that, I think is one thing I try to be. Um, how successful I am or not, I don't know. <laughs> but that's one thing I try to do um, on, on almost every show. So. Yeah, and if I um, can add to, to Camellia's uh, talk about costumes as well. I, I was just thinking, you know, when Michelle sent us these questions about how, um, at least in Vancouver, it really does feel like the, the big costume shops over here are almost 100% white. So in that sense, the industry has still a lot to learn from. Um, I've been noticing in the last perhaps two or three years that there's a little bit more um, receptiveness about these issues. But for example, what I've been seeing in costume shops a lot, and I'm also still learning about it, is how you know, we don't have um, enough supply of like pantyhose or underwear or makeup, um, different shades so that we can actually honor everybody's different um, skin color and body shapes and stuff like that. So I think we're a little bit more aware of that, but we still have to have even more conversations about how to deal respectfully with like differences in, in that and also um, cultural issues as, you know, so to be careful to not appropriate uh, things that are very just important and that we have to um, pay attention to in different cultures. But I think we still have a long way to go in that sense. Yeah, and in terms of like theatrical training, when I went to NTS and I graduated about three years ago, our hair and makeup class, we didn't touch on any, any hair that wasn't like Caucasian straight hair. There was nothing to do with different textures or um, ways to, to work with natural, natural curly hair. Um, so in terms of education, there's like a huge amount of information that's lacking and it's a shame to produce designers that then go into the world after doing 
three years of training without like any concept of how to work with um, diverse bodies. Yeah. Oh, you're muted, Sammy. Yeah, I can share a little bit about being a projection designer and working with actors as uh, in terms of filmmaking. Because um, I had this one experience where I was working with a queer Asian actor um, and uh, through, throughout filming, I was trying to hold space for him and uh, saying, I understand, you know, what you might be going through with, with being a queer Asian. Um, and uh, but still in the end of the day, when the footage came out, um, when I first test run it, uh, the actor was crying. It was in tears just because there's so much um, stigma around uh, especially for Asian queer males being on screen and that kind of uh, association with mainstream uh, screen culture um, that it hasn't been spoken about so much in terms of model minority issues, right? So, so then it, it hit me so deeply in my heart because of my research has a lot been focused on that, you know, and I was thinking of I'm, I'm here wearing a hat of a projection designer uh, and, you know, trying to create content for, to deliver for this show you know, how, how do I take that extra step to actually hold space uh, for the people I have the, actually have the lived experience for, right? So I was thinking around, I was talking about Asian skin tone, you know, how practically, how, how to work with Asian skin tone in the way that, you know, film school doesn't teach you uh, in the same way as DPs, right? Um, and, um, and I was thinking around what kind of um, uh, work I can work around. And so in the end, I found out it's not just a technical thing, it's, there's a whole much complexity of power dynamics that comes into play, right? So, so the, the skin tone can change, you know, uh, um, and uh, I was trying to do is actually talking to lighting designer around changing the hue of lights uh, in space. And in tech, I will actually project uh, the film itself. And I use Isadora, which is a software that you can actually change uh, contrast and color and lots of stuff in real time. So we're taking um, budgeting extra time just for uh, balancing hues and saturation. So then, and even giving time for the actor to actually look at it uh, with, with us together to feel if they're comfortable, what, how their body is being presented on screen and on stage, right? So I thought those uh, things that we've done technically are really helpful in terms of, uh, you know, well, working extra, you know, extra additional effort to make the actor feel more comfortable I think that's for ethical reasons and for aesthetic reason as well. Um, in the end of the day, I feel like I was lucky because I have a lived experience being a performer. I have been photographed by uh, white males and I can see in the picture, my body reacts to uh, that power so differently and versus that actor who I have the lived experience for that, I can, that we can communicate differently. Um, so I feel like for me it was a lesson to know coming from my own life experience and also to do the extra homework and not to assume, but to do extra research on what it, what, you know, what it have mean uh, for this actor to, um, to have to go through being some certain invisible trauma that person might not be able to spoke about and do extra check-in and, and talk about, you know, how, how do you feel? Is anything I can really do, you know, and, and budget extra time to do the check-in and showing the work and actually, you know, going to private space where um, the performer can actually uh, speak with their heart and really tell you how they feel and show vulnerability. Um, then, you know, because those tears for me was like, I want to avoid that. I want to avoid people 
having to come out and you know to outburst emotions, right? Want people to be able to uh, work in the way that that um, that that feel uplifted and and, and represented. Um, so yeah, that's 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 me, you know. And um, I think those works are very very worth it in terms of budget, extra time to to hold space for for BIPA actors. I guess I'll jump in in terms of the audio world. Um, I think it's sort of a, a lesser developed area in terms of um, how important color matching is when you have actors in lav mics on stage. Um, it's a practice that is certainly becoming more uh, standard in uh, a lot of the regional theaters and certainly on Broadway because color matching isn't only for skin tone. It can be for hair color, wigs, any costume bits that um, overlap with a mic cable. And so, um, but often it comes down to a budget issue where if the producer hasn't bought the mic cables, they, may, they might be rentals from a company, and they're actually not allowed to paint them or do anything to them. So then that becomes a conversation that has to be had much earlier in the whole production process about if you're gonna color match, then you have to be able to do that for all your cast members um, and for any eventuality. And so that also becomes a conversation that you can have as a sound designer with a costume designer and say, what do you have in mind for X, Y, Z? And where can we, where are we going to hide um, the mic packs and, and things like that. Um, and I really love what Cami said earlier about meeting the performers and speaking to them and having their input because a lot of times um, I run into situations where performers had a really negative uh, experience um, with uh, a mic issue in the past. And so they get really um, hesitant um, or, um, or nervous about, about that in the future. Um, but if you're open with them and you say, hey, so we are right now, we've ordered um, beige mics for everyone. But during tech week, we are going to be color matching them. We're going to use a non-toxic uh, uh, cosmetic paint um, or an artist paint to match everyone. Um, so just let us like let me know if you're uncomfortable with anything, if um, the if you know, the cosmetics are rubbing off on your skin, if you're getting a reaction, X, Y, Z, like, please let us know at every point um, in the process. And I find that people are really responsive and open to that because then they feel like they're being listened to and that their considerations are taken into account. That's great, Deanna. Oh, oh sorry, Rachel, were you gonna? Oh, no, I was just gonna say, I, I like resonate with so much of what everybody said already. There's like, um, there's a lot there that's really familiar. And I think what it comes down to for me a lot of the time is like, it is time. It's just like seeing, looking ahead and saying, I know that later when we're in the space all together, we have to take the time for this stuff. Um, and like fighting for that time because there seems to not be enough to go around is a lot of what it actually comes down to. Like having, you know, a number of, uh, of options ready to go and, and then taking the time and testing them out is like, the, the best thing that you can possibly do. Great. And I, that sort of leads into my, my next question. Um, uh, have you ever put a request into the theater where they didn't necessarily understand what you needed and were you challenged on any of these requests? It could be the producer or the production manager or, or whoever. I guess I could start with that one. Um, 
something that I always like to advocate for, especially when working with a BIPOC cast, is to also have BIPOC light walkers. Um, <laughs> especially, like, I have too many stories. Like, that's what's a little bit infuriating about this, is that I have too many stories uh, of where this has been a challenge. Uh, but I'll give you, if I can, I'll just uh, give a little anecdote of the most recent one. Uh, it happened earlier this year, and it was actually a little bit of a unique story because um, I was originally supposed to design it, but because I had to have knee surgery, I then had to hire an associate to take over um, my hang and focus, but we worked together on it. Uh, but it was a show, a uh, one woman show. Uh, she's brown. And so I said very early on, we need to get a brown light walker. There's literally no one else to light on this stage. It doesn't make sense if we don't have a brown light walker um, because not only will it mean that it's sort of a loss of levels time, but it just means, well, like as soon as she comes onto the stage, we're going to have to redo it again. Uh, so it's it's really cost effective as well if, if we just do this. And I, and I gave enough time, I wrote it in an email. I'm a big fan of writing emails because then I have a record of, oh yes, I did mention this. I know I said it in the meeting, but I also know I wrote you an email about it. Um, so uh, the day of the focus, I asked my associate to check uh, in a, and to confirm that we got a light walker of color and the TD said no, to which I was very angry uh, because I was hundreds of kilometers away and unable to do anything other than be high on drugs while I was recovering from my knee surgery. Um, so I, I told her, I said, please have, like it's, it's really important that we get a light walker of color in three hours. You are in Toronto. There are people of color in Toronto. Uh, so please make that happen. And then, uh, so they eventually found someone for, I think, the evening session. Uh, but because of the amount of time, the afternoon was going to be uh, a, a white woman. And <laughs> I remember getting this uh, text message from her. And it was something, and uh, I feel a little bit badly saying the story because I know she feels, uh, my associate feels really uncomfortable with it, but I, I, I at the time told her, no, it's, you shouldn't be feeling uncomfortable, but, uh, uncomfortable about it. Uh, what was said to you is uncomfortable. Uh, but basically the TD had said, uh, yes, sorry, we got a white woman for the moment, but I've asked her to wear bronzer. Yeah, exactly. So a bunch of expletives said in the text. I was like, okay, well, this is like your first day in tech week. Uh, so let's just keep everything happy. Keep going with it. Uh, but I really think it needs to be said. And I, and I, for a long time, really wanted to share that story on the Designers Guild because I just thought it was like, that is not the right <laughs> reaction or the right solution to, to this problem. Not that it's a problem. It's just like, you didn't do your job. We asked you, and I remember she asked me to then say, when did we ask for a light walker of color? And I was like, stand by. Here's the email. So it was just very frustrating. And unfortunately, not the only story I have of this. Um, but yeah, light walkers of color advocate. It's, it's so important. I actually, I actually ask for so if I have four races of people on stage, even though they budgeted for two light walkers, I say, I don't care. I want four people and I want 
them to be represented on stage. And I remember a long time ago, I think only when I started to get my balls in theater, for lack of a better term, someone, uh, I was doing, uh, I was designing a show that had an all black cast and um, they offered me two white light walkers. And I said, so I might as well, like, this is, use, this is not, this is not appropriate. I might as well have nobody stand there because I'm not, uh, this is not, this is not at all helpful except for that somebody might be five foot six. Like other than that, there's nothing that's useful about this situation. Um, and so I, yeah, I have a tendency to yell and scream in those situations because it is absolutely unacceptable, but certainly as a lighting designer, that's the, that's the huge, uh, hurdle. And I, I, CJ, I do remember hearing quite a lot about that story when that happened. And I was just like, I can't, I, you know, what makes me incredibly angry? Cause I don't have a problem myself, um, speaking up at quite a loud level, um, is that I feel really horribly because I feel like, uh, younger designers see this as being a problem and are fearful or something of, of speaking uh, what should be spoken for fear of being diff labeled as difficult. Well, in this case, I don't care if I'm labeled as difficult. It's not being difficult. Um, it's the thing that makes me the most angry as a lighting designer, for sure. I think that intimidation aspect of it is so important to recognize because when I'm working, a lot of the time I'm working in theater with other Indigenous creators and we work within a very Indigenous way of working, whatever that means, but we just kind of find this way of working collaboratively. And I know theater is collaborative also, but it does feel very different in that collaborative approach in how I'm involved as a costume designer and the kinds of steps that we go. So it's not just like, how am I dressing those actors or bringing the directors and playwriters vision to life. It's like, how am I involved in that process? And then when I step into a mainstream theater, that's where it's like becomes very intimidating because I'm not used to working in that way. And I really try, don't enjoy it because of that. Um, there's a lot of pushback. It's very intimidating. You don't want to be labeled as difficult, especially when I'm not working in theater all the time. Of course, I don't want my reputation to be harmed because I, I, I enjoy the work. And so it's very difficult to be able to speak up to those instances. But when we're talking about um, systemic um, operation in the way that it's working it's like it goes right down to like the very way how we're opening up that space how are we opening the door and welcoming people in and that's so important in most of the shows we're doing where it's like there's a very there's a protocol to follow by inviting people into the room so that people don't feel afraid to speak up so people have the chance to say whatever they need and how are we all going to work together to make sure that we can do that because we're going back to that last question we can research all we want and we can really great get these great ideas but if we're not on this all on the same page i find it really really challenging to to do something where you know we've all actually listened to each other you know we really truly listened and acted on that um, yeah, so when I'm thinking about making a request to a theater, I feel like that intimidation, like first addressing 
that making a space that is open where we are allowed to ask and we are we don't have to be afraid of being labeled difficult or we don't have to go irate to be like we need this <laughs> right like we should be in a space where it's it's okay to ask for these things yeah and like the current structure of the way that most canadian theater is made where it's like super hierarchical and super top down like only breeds toxicity like there's no point having one person be like the theater god and then have a bunch of theater minions like that's not how you make good art um i, I when i was working on a piece one of our dramaturgs kept like doing like this motion um for like this is how theater is made currently and like this is how we should make theater um because like the, the way that uh, in every department um that we're approaching creation right now is is incredibly flawed um and like the only times in recent history i have felt like actually free to like make mistakes in design and like risky choices have been um on like indigenous shows where there is like this atmosphere of of creation and collaboration that exists amongst everyone instead of just like oh there's a director and i must obey them Yeah, I have so many experiences, but it's kind of, it's not really race related, uh, but because I work with technology, right? New technology, and I, I do about 35 shows a year. So there's always like so many things I run into. Um, but I think for me, the most important thing uh, as a projection designer, a new media designer is to work with a production manager, TD that you fully trust, that who understand what you do. And that is a, a you know make it or break it kind of thing for me in my experience anyway that that knows about your culture how you work your personality and kind of an innovation that you do um otherwise you are putting on two or three hats at the same time doing other people's job right taking on the designer role creator role and also TDing and also like communicating with people because everyone's like i don't understand this so throw it throw it back at you so um so yeah that's like so important to find people that you work with well especially pm and td they're super underrated such important roles yeah and though i will say that even if it's someone who doesn't understand because i'm with you when you work as a projection designer people are like the magic box makes stuff um but finding people that like trust you in what you're saying so like, even if they don't completely understand why you need the projector you say you need, they like trust that you've done your homework and will make it happen. Um, because like, it is uncommon I find to find people who know all the ins and outs of projection technology in particular. But like trust is a really, really big one. Does anybody else have anything they want to say before um, we move? Yeah. Me, like just talking about requests for me, like, I just wanted to share another anecdote as well. It's, it's not happening as much again in our community, um, but I just wanted to, to share what happened in Vancouver six years ago and before this topic on race was hot. I designed uh, a production of In the Heights um, and I think I was probably one 
out of three Latinx people involved in the whole production, right? So I think the request at this moment has to be that you have to cast the right person. In that case, they, they cast a white woman for the lead role who was supposed to be a Puerto, Rit uh, Puerto Rican woman. And, the, and the, uh, the request was mostly from the director and the choreographer throughout the whole production um, and the rehearsals that I make this, this woman look more ethnic. That was a word that they used. So, I mean, and that was six years ago and I really don't see that happening anymore. But um, just back then, I just didn't have the, the confidence to just uh, step up and say, hey, this is not right. And I'm also deeply offended <laughs> by when you say you have to make somebody look ethnic. Like, how, what do you mean? How, how do I, how do I, do that and and that's not even the right word to to use but again i feel like even though things are not perfect at all that at least that would be something that nobody would dare doing in any company as far as i know i might be wrong about it but i just want to add to that there was this one time i was working on the show and it was like it was um a native play and I, I, whenever I see plays that are written by and for Indigenous people, like I take it as an opportunity to like, let's just have fun with this. So I was like going into this really fun, cool Andy Warhol kind of graphic feel for these like characters where that were from like 1700. So it was really, really out there. And I did it and she, the director was like, no, she was a white director. No, but it's just not real enough. And they have to look poorer. So it's like these like ideas of like the stereotypes that come not only with just like how you think people are supposed to look, but all of the stereotypes that come along that people just perpetuate. And it just feels that same way where you're like, what? How could you say something like that? What is your vision? And why am I a part of this vision? <laughs> like, um, yeah, so like it's, that's why it's so important to work together because I think that just, we could have done something really cool with that show. And yeah. Just and I, yeah, I gotta say that funny enough in that production too, I think I was brought in as a designer to make things look more Latinx, you know, which is like, why am I being brought for that? And like, I'm the only person working against the current in a whole, you know, big, almost mostly white production. So. Mm -hmm. And if they're bringing you in as like the Latinx person or the indigenous person to create these stereotypical you know, images of these people, then it's not even right. It's like the people who get consultation and say, we consulted Native people on this project, but they do not take any of their suggestions on those projects. It's just a write-off. It's just to say you did it. And that it happens all the time, all the time for me. Yeah. I just have a small anecdote. I try to keep it short. Um, just kind of going off of what Sage um, and Carmen are saying. I, just, I did an opera last year. Um, and it was fantastic that in terms of that, the cast was the most multicultural cast of an A-house opera I've ever worked on. Um, and it was really, really great. And this one character um, was portrayed by uh, African-American baritone and his character is meant to have a haircut. So he's supposed to, and they're poor artists. So he's supposed to look poor and have a long overgrown hair. And I was having a lot of pushback from my wig, head of wigs, and part of that was because I, other than photographs from the period, I didn't know how to articulate what an African-American man's, you know, five month hair should look like other than photographs. And he was not quite 
getting it or doing it and I didn't know how to articulate it. So where there was a lot of back and forth between both of us. It resulted in me not seeing the wig on the performer in a fitting before tech dress, which is really bad. And, and I was like, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna put that on him. I don't wanna put that on him. They put that on him. And I was like, by act two, I was like, it's cut, it's going. Because it was very, it was just sending the wrong message. It wasn't a stereotype we wanted to perpetuate, even though it would have been period, even though it would have been, you know, accurate, I guess. Um, it didn't look good on the performer. It didn't perpetuate the right message that we wanted to or the right stereotype that we wanted to. So in the end, we cut it. And then I, I got no pushback at that point. But it was a bit of a battle the whole time because the wig maker really wanted it to make it happen and really wanted it to do it. But it was just, so I learned a lot on that. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, hair is like, for me, that's that's the biggest requests that people don't understand uh, that I make, uh, especially when it comes to like, you know, if you have a black woman and you need something like braids and people are like, what, that costs hundreds of dollars? And you have to say, yes, it does. Put that in the budget somehow. You know, like that seems to me, it's so obvious, but you know, they're not thinking of those things or, you know, sort of requesting a black barber in small towns can be really tricky. Um, but those kinds of requests where people don't understand why you're asking, um, it's really bizarre. I've been, I've been lucky though, the last few years, I feel like people, uh, you know, in general are getting better, but definitely that's the one that's like the least understood thing that I come up against uh, often. <clears throat> that um, sort of leads into another question um, around primarily white theater companies. Um, there's a, uh, so I, I just want to ask what your experience has been with primarily white theater companies pro programming BIPOC shows and um, how you felt companies handled it. Did you get the support you needed? Try to speak to that a little bit. Um, in my in most, well, is it, is it always, it's not always the case, but in most cases when I found that a primarily white theater company is hired or is programming a BIPOC show. They often, um, is that true? I, it's from my experience, it has been true that they've hired a BIPOC director who in turn hires BIPOC creative team and actors. Um, so in that way, it's been positive. Um, for example, like Shaw's programmed um, The Orchard by Serena Parmar, hired Ravi Jane, who hired me and then, but it was also the play about um, uh, um, Indian farmers in Okanagan. So naturally we'd hire, he hired uh, and pushed for um, actors of Indian descent or diaspora, um, which was great, which I think was, was rare, especially at those festivals, the big festivals. Um, I also speak a little bit about, so Middletown at Shaw was, is, not is not a BIPOC play at all. Um, and in it, there's a, it's a, there's a problematic moment. <laughs> so the playwright wrote in a moment where a character who's not indigenous has to put on a Native American costume and do a dance. And it was meant to be romantic. It was meant to be old American West, old American old West kind of thing. You can't do that here without, you know, without, it's just not appropriate. And so our director, Meg Rowe, asked that pushed and pushed the theater company to um, either hire an indigenous actor for that part 
um, we didn't get that request. Uh, but then also, so then she she um, consulted several uh, theater colleagues who are indigenous about how we should approach this, because it was being portrayed by uh, a non-indigenous actor, and the character is not meant to be indigenous either. So it was problematic in many ways. So I found that theater company programmed it without really realizing those implications. Um, so it was up to the director and our us as a creative team, as a core of actor, a group of actors putting on this show to sort of find a way to to do it appropriately um, it was less on the direct on the on the theater company but I found that interesting that the theater company programmed it without really thinking about that just because it was a famous and popular play so <clears throat> thank you Cammy. Mm -hmm. yeah I, I mean sorry I feel like uh it's starting to shift a little bit. Um, last year, I uh, was an intern at the Stratford Festival. So um, I was supported by the Metcalf Foundation and the PTTP grant and um, OAC to uh, intern with the director of production. And by doing that internship, I was allowed to sit in on some season planning meetings. Uh, so it was interesting uh, to hear how they came together to discuss uh putting together what would have been our 2020 season which included res sisters uh and and i just remember them really advocating that they wanted to get an indigenous uh creative team behind it and so i feel like there's now starting to be a lot more conversations about putting that empowerment into and create like putting together a team that can help support that i would have been really interested interested to see how it would have played on stage and and if the uh intention would have grown into being what what they hoped it would be and um and be fully supportive of of the by of the indigenous cast on stage um but yeah i feel like you know it's it's all especially now that we're talking about it more I really do hope that white, predominantly white theater companies will actually be more active in that, in their season planning. Um, it's one thing to program plays that are written by BIPOC playwrights and are put together by BIPOC uh, directors and whatever creative team comes out of that. But if, uh, if you are intentionally um, putting BIPOC casts into plays that have been historically white, how does that shift and what are the choices that you're making to do that? So for instance, again, speaking of Stratford, they had made a choice to, um, to hire, uh, sorry, to, to cast um, a black woman to play Hamlet this year. And how does that shift and how does that play differ um, going into that. So it's, I don't know, it just comes up with some interesting questions for moving forward in the future. And I hope something good comes out of it. <laughs> I think, and it depends on theater to theater, but I think that there's often a lack of under or acceptance of different theatrical practices that might come about from um, programming a, a BIPOC play. Um, so there's like the theaters are really excited to like diversify their season, but aren't necessarily willing to put 
the money or time into fully supporting these productions and the people involved in the productions and that like if the creators involved don't want to work a six-day work week um all of a sudden like that becomes a big issue or like uh i was with Kim Lupa when we toured to persephone in in saskatoon and they're they were like not equipped to have that show there in in any way they didn't treat the artists with respect there was blatant acts of racism that weren't addressed by the theater and um like even the fact that they like billeted the artists super super far away from the space um was was very disrespectful um and so like it's it's great that theaters want to program BIPOC shows, but they really need to be aware that you can't just take a show and like put it into like a English colonial theatrical system. They need to do the work holistically around that. I really like the way you phrase that, Emily. As in Sage, you also mentioned this about um, how the Eurocentric model tends to be much more hierarchical in terms of how we work and collaborate or even exchange ideas. And I just find it interesting and also mildly problematic that there's an idea of a divide that for a BIPOC play, we would tend to, um, for lack of a better term, decolonize the artistic practice um, as opposed to applying that um, uh, uh, ethos to a white written play as well, or a, a play directed by a white person. Why can't we apply that to all theater making so that it's not only a, it doesn't only have to be a BIPOC written show where um, there is more lateral communication and um, consultation. And I'm not sure, Michelle, for if this is the next question you're tackling about consultation, but. Um, good, go on, go on. Okay, go on, okay. <laughs> yeah. Because um, uh, I find that term is such a, it can be very loaded in terms of when a, a quote-unquote consultant is brought into the process. Are they brought on in the early dramaturgical stages? Are they brought on as more of a production consultant? Um, are, they, are they paid a commission? Like, how are they compensated for their labor and their time? You know, what if it's someone who's actually not an artistic practitioner by the, by the technical definition, but they are a relative of a performer? Um, or even a designer who's who's asked um, to bring some of their knowledge or their teachings into a process, right? Sometimes it's not a financial compensation that's actually uh, appropriate in those times. It's better to give someone or, um, you know, or, or just invite them into the rehearsal room so that they can meet everyone. And so understanding that there are these different ways of navigating that. Um, and that um, Yolanda Bennell wrote a really great piece um, earlier that was saying that consultation does not mean consent or it doesn't automatically equate consent. Um, consultation is just the first step um, in opening that door. Um, and so I found for me as a sound designer slash composer, the most effective times where, that, where I've been supported um, by even a white-led theater company in a, a so-called BIPOC show is that they have um, found the resources and uh, commissioned a composer from that culture to actually write the music and then I will come in as a sound designer and facilitate the incorporation of the music into the show. But then I am more of the, the 
theatrical design liaison, but I do not have to impose um, a cultural creative uh, impetus of my own without any prior knowledge. And then that way, um, the music is then written specifically for that show, and we have then all the consent that is required to use that music in the show. Okay, thanks. Long rant. <laughs> You know, it's so when you talk, there's a couple of things actually I want to talk about is first talking about these institutions that um, are trying to put on these, you know, BIPOC shows and, um, you know, they're really trying hard, but there's never enough resources talking about hair and the amounts that it costs. Or I've seen it so many times where in Indigenous shows where they want to have a very specific kind of beaded piece of work, which costs thousands of dollars. And I'm like, you like, and then they want to, they're like, well, you know, someone in the community, they can do it for cheap. It's like, I don't want to exploit my community to do something because I know them. And it's like, if we're going to start building our, you know, the theater industry to be more um, inclusive, I think it's so important to make sure that we are budgeting for that to happen. And what's happening in these um, big institutions like um, NAC or wherever is that they are this huge institution and then they get funding, for specifically indigenous funding or whatever specialized niche kind of funding that they get. And then they take a huge check section of that away from what it's supposed to fund, that indigenous production. And then we don't have the resources to actually do what they had even applied for. So this is, that's, I think that's a huge problem where of course there needs to be an admin that goes into the, into the larger institution, but that money is specifically for the indigenous or whatever section, whatever has been applied for. So like when we're talking about the industry on that side, and then when we talk about consultation, um, looking at again like what that relationship is because there's been a number of times where i'm invited on to do do the indigenous thing in film and theater and tv like you know people want me to be there but then there's this other designer there who's like the real person who's the industry person who is going to do the work and it's like i'm you know hire me as the designer or don't hire me like i, I don't want to sit here like because i am qualified to do this work so like and i totally see like me what is that collaboration looking like and how are you paying these two roles to do essentially the same job, right? So I just, more like issues than talking about solutions, but I think it's important to say these things so that hopefully we can find solutions to them. Yeah, and there's like this concept that things don't require sacrifice. Um, like, theaters want to like make big changes and they're like oh but we don't have the money and you're like so cancel a show in your season like if you want to make things better and more equitable and do the right thing and make theater in a good way then like you're going to have to sacrifice something and like yeah that sucks but just deal with it like if you want to actually make change you don't expect like magical grant money to fall out of the sky for it like you know how finances work just do it Mm. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, oh, sorry. sorry. Go ahead, please, Sammy. Yeah. Okay, I just latch on that. I, I did work on uh, a so-called BIPOC show. It's very political, um, and I, the whole cast were BIPOC. Um, the company is like very big, very established company. Uh, they hire a white director, and uh, we were looking at the budget, and then it, it was like peanuts. It was like small, 
in the in the small really indie kind of budget and then that that was kind of a, a first red flag for me to think about like why you know if you if you want to work in you know very culturally sensitive kind of work you know it actually takes more than you think to produce a work like that and then um if you actually make um, the budget much smaller than the usual production, you are gonna actually marginalize this, you know, pe- like the, cu- the culture of the topic and the people themselves even furthermore. So, and perpetuate that systemic oppression, right? So, um, so that, that was one of my experience, but overall I still took on a project and the project was very successful. The director was actually really good, ended up being really good. So I started to do self-reflection. On, I have a checklist of things I do when white company uh, asked me to work. You know, first of all, I would tell myself that, uh, you know, I, I want them to hire me because I'm good, not because I'm a POC, right? You know, because you, you do the first thing checks, like, are they tokenizing me? Or like, are they actually, do, am I the right fit for the project, right? Uh, after I do that checklist and that, you know, really going to like who, who, who are the producer, who are the designer, who are the cast and like who are, who are the people get involved, you know, do, is it right fit or, or is it some kind of weird zigzag people being pulled together? And then, um, yeah, and usually I, I, do, I go through a bit of negotiation to, to know what their intentions are, you know, uh, to see what they really want to do. Because I ultimately, I feel like, you know, we, we are in this together. We, we need to take the first step to make that positive change, right? And I, I do encourage white theater company to co- keep, keep making work and, you know, make mistakes if you have to, but really like step up and, and contribute as much resource as you can. Um, you know, we are all learning. Because I, um, for me, well, like my whole life, I'm working with white, white companies. That's a period, right? That's, that's how we, we survive right now. It's the, well, in such a white system right now, right? So, and I do, I do have work, and I also, it's funny, when I work with like POC company, right? There's two POC problems too. So there's this like company that's, um, that's all the staff are, are led by POC um, and the director themselves, um, working on very cultural sensitive content but the management is white management and primarily when i perform or design i realize that uh the audience are 90 percent white and so i see this like kind of pattern of the director keep going back to the same old story catering to the white audience and i say no we need to go deeper now you have a full poc creators we can go deeper into our stories but the directors keep pulling back what well, there is a producing kind of, you know, kind of stress and burden that we need to uphold and, um, you know, tickets, all that stuff. But, you know, I can just see that fear of assimilation and the kind of undertone white supremacy that we live in uh, and seeing the white audience loving what we make, you know, and that being objectified further and further. So, so um, there's complexity in all, all, all different companies. So sometimes I feel white company can be more fearless because they are like, well, that's why I want you because, you know, I value you being POC and I don't want to tokenize you. So let's try to make that step further. So yeah, we're dealing with different level of fear and simulation and that's something to, uh, to discuss and try to work towards, yeah. I was just gonna say a handful of years ago, um, talking about, um, talking about both consultants and, and putting, uh, putting resources forward for um, BIPOC shows. There was a handful of years ago where I did two uh, one-person plays. Um, in Toronto, a number of years ago, there, was, there seemed to be 
a number of companies took on this mandate to put more BIPOC shows in their seasons, larger companies. And both of these shows I'd done uh, for free, um, initially um, Fringe Summer's kind of ideas. Um, and um, uh, they were presented by companies that I'd worked for many times when they eventually got picked up. Um, I got paid the worst I'd ever been paid because they were one person shows. But the reason that they were, I don't know why I put one person shows in quotes. It's because they, um, everyone thinks a one person show is incredibly inexpensive, but also both of them required, one of them required an enormous amount of traditional indigenous beading work that they were like, but we only have $100 for the costume. It's very clear in the show what it should have been. And the other one um, required um, some, uh, the performer, um, it was a South Asian show that required um, some coaching and consultation regarding some of the subject matter and then also some traditional dancing of which we had to find someone to do it for free. And in both of those were both in the same year, they were both ended up getting picked up and presented by larger companies who um, these are one person shows so they should be cheap. And so weren't making the investment in these things. And uh, it was really, uh, I think I, uh, certain shows that I've worked on since then, things have changed to a certain degree, but at the beginning of this sort of, white companies bringing on taking on or presenting BIPOC shows it was it was uh really upsetting at the time certainly in both of these shows too the the performers were the create they were the writers and creators of the shows and so it was um this idea i mean it's an unfortunate idea that exists in a lot of theater where things should be less expensive or for free or who can get it for the cheapest um, but, um, but certainly on these two shows, the idea of spending any money on anything that had to do with um, the traditional background of the story, the story being told and representing that on stage was not, uh, was not supported, unfortunately. Um. Last year, I designed a show at Bard on the Beach, which is a, the big Shakespeare company out of here in Vancouver. Connor was involved in it, but he's very quiet in the corner there. Um, and I think, you know, like thinking, thinking about it, I, I think the company handled it the best that they could. They actually did put a lot of money into hiring a lot of consultants. And they um, also made sure that they brought in it, sorry, the play was All's Well, That Ends Well, and it was set in India in the late 40s. So they did make sure that they hired half of the cast um, South Asian people. They also hired, there's an ambulance coming, so I'll just meet myself soon. But um, I think they did a, a very good job in that sense. And I think it, it was a, a big learning curve for all of us. At the moment, I did consider maybe I wasn't perhaps the best person to design that show um, 
my directors just kept saying that I was right. And then I think we just went through a really huge learning curve that was incredibly challenging for all of us. And that I really appreciate at the end because I just realized that no matter how much research as a designer you do, if you are not part of that culture, there's always so many different aspects and nuances that just come into a culture when you just don't know it that well, just from your personal experience, right? So even though in the costume department, we had at least two or three consultants coming in, just there were so many small details that I just wasn't aware of, like the way you wear a bindi and the color the, the bindi represents and the way you wrap a sari and the way you wrap a turban and the way, you know, a Sigman would wear their beard versus their mustache. It's just like all of it is really, really incredibly interesting information. But um, in hindsight, I think perhaps I wasn't the right person to design that show, even though I think it went well at the end. But um, I think the company handled it very well in terms of the resources and the money they put into it, although there's always room for improvement, for sure. Rachel, did you want to say something? Oh yeah, I guess I was I was thinking about that the sort of like consultant um, role, and I, I feel like the the best scenario that I've had is where um, somebody is in a position of power, uh, say a choreographer or a music director, and that person also is kind of a consultant in a way. So it's like putting the right people on the team. Um, can sort of like it can make the difference in that in that way and that person is then you know doing that consulting as part of their work if that makes I don't know I'm not sure if that actually is the as the best way but those are the best situations where I've had where that person is accessible in a way um you know like to to kind of um answer questions and actually witness the work and also be part of the work and that makes it feel so much better I think like Anyways, those are the best situations that I've had that seem like consultants. I don't know if you would really call it that though. I have a, I have a question about um, bringing on uh, new, newish designers that are, um, uh, have specific skills in other areas like a visual artist as a set designer or a DJ as a sound designer or a, 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 a fashion person as a costume designer. Um, and if you've worked with uh, someone like that, or if you've seen, if you, you know, worked, worked with them within your discipline or not in your discipline, and um, how did that work? Did it not work? How did the theater companies kind of handle that? Um, recently on Skyborn, uh, I had the chance to work with uh, two visual artists on, on the projection design. Uh, and like, first of all, they weren't like brought on as consultants, they were brought on as part of like what we called the visual team, which I think was a really important distinction because it, um, we really tried to create the sense of agency with the non-theatrical based artists that were involved in the show where they could um, make changes and and help craft the, the vision like from point zero to to the end um and it was it was very successful we i had the opportunity to work with uh, a visual artist and a sculptor um 
who were both lovely indigenous women from the territory that our play was was set in um and it like there was like definitely there's a little bit of learning involved in like how theater works and how projection works and how like what assets are useful for me in terms of integrating them and and how to like approach that workflow but like that's relatively a very small amount of our conversations um you know like that you get that sort of out of the way at the beginning and then just like jump into creating and we were able to make things as a team that um took the projection design a lot farther than if they hadn't been involved in the project um and i think that like diversifying teams in general is like a really interesting and rewarding concept for theater um and if you look at the workload that is required of any one theatrical designer on a show it's usually really really immense so instead of having uh because the sound the sound design did the did the same thing on the show where they had like an entire team similar to what deanna was saying with having a, a composer involved and it, like each of our departments were able to like work with these teams and like they're what that is indicative of having enough money to do that which we were very very fortunate and very grateful to have but um broadening our our work and the people we bring in and not being really precious about designs and like because there is obviously the instinct of like i made this i want to keep it um but suppressing your inner schmiegel and uh and opening up to like working with with people from other disciplines i personally have found very very rewarding oh man this is a topic i find in my discipline at least it even sometimes goes back to um the question of what is a sound designer because there is so much overlap with composition now um, unless you're in a more traditional musical theater style production where the music is already written it's already scored and it's already set um, and the sound designer comes in more on the systems reinforcement side, but certainly there are a lot of plays that blur that distinction. And for someone who might, let's say, come from a film composition or a DJ background, let's say, and uh, the director hires them because they're really inspired by the music that this person has written, but they've never stepped inside a theater before. They don't know how Tech Week goes. They don't know how to program QLab. Suddenly, uh, I've been in a situation where I've been called in last minute to essentially work a number of hours as a, a design consultant because the person has written all these great cues but has no system for implementing them into the show, doesn't know um, what a cue sheet is, what the stage manager needs, and they themselves are sort of stuck and isolated and siloed and no one's made an effort to help them out either. They've come into this process, you know, having had a few consultations with the director, thinking that and playing things in rehearsal, thinking that they have everything ready to go. And then suddenly they're holding this bucket in tech week. Um, and I think that's a big oversight uh, uh, in the early stages of producing where it's just so imperative to have these conversations very openly about what someone's background is, what they're comfortable with. Um, and and what do they need to support them? Um, is it is it hiring a technician who also then is paid additional hours to design the show, which because so often then the, the operator ends up becoming the designer, but they're doing double or triple duty, and no one's informed them of this at the last minute. Um, so it just puts everyone in a really sticky situation. 
Um, and, uh, and certainly, you know, bringing someone in as like a, uh, a design mentor when someone, when the person who's originally hired is already an established artist in their own domain is pretty condescending. So figuring out a way to have that be more of a, as I said before, a ladder collaboration rather than saying, oh, this is the person who's the expert in theater um, and we've brought you on for um, X, Y, Z reason, uh, as opposed to saying, no, this, um, you know, this person might be the, the programming um, side of the team, whereas this person is more the orchestrator. Um, and again, those are all labels that you don't even necessarily need in the process. You can just say it's the audio team, the music team, which I think is much more conducive, but everyone comes in with their own skill sets and their strengths. Um, and for a producer to be able to acknowledge that, uh, I think is, uh, can be really powerful and encouraging for everyone involved. Well, and it's irresponsible to bring people who are established artists uh, and had their own careers um, to bring them into a theatrical process without, when you know they don't know how theater works and just be like, you'll be good, plop. Um, because it's not their responsibility either to suddenly learn the ins and outs of like show control software when that's not something that they've ever expressed wanting to do. You've just brought them in because you like their work. Um, and it's like pretty violent just to give not give the artists that you bring in um particularly if they're BIPOC artists all the tools that they need to to bring their work to completion in very general terms it's about supporting it's about supporting artists when they come in to work and so if you're bringing in an artist and this has happened on many shows that i've worked on where a visual artist gets brought in or a composer gets brought in. And I'll say early on, how are we supporting this person who's never worked in a theater before? This is not to fault the person who's never worked in the theater before. It is to say, what we do is kind of weird and specialized. And uh, we're, not we're not rocket scientists by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a different thing. And what we do is very different and the hours that we work are crazy. And so how do we support this new person who's essential to our team? How are we going to invite that person into this process? And I think there is to a certain degree, maybe to a medium or a large degree, a lack of understanding at a certain level, the producing level of how what we do is very specific in the theater and bringing this like the most important composer in for this particular show or this visual artist, bringing them into this process, it's important to support them. And, and sometimes I would say, um, assuming a technician or a technical director or a production manager is going to take on that responsibility when those people already have full-time jobs in Tech Week. You know, it's not, I also don't think that's fair or appropriate in terms of bringing that person's art to its full blossom, right? 
You can't just tag that on. And I, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to negate what you say, Deanna. It's just that, you know, a technician in a, in a, in a tech week is probably going to work 70 hours. So how do we add to their load? And so making sure that, that it's budgeted appropriately for and that the person is provided with the most support they can be provided with, you know? And there, are, I've brought that up previously when we have someone outside of the theater coming in. And sometimes it's been met with um, positivity and dollars to support that person. And sometimes it hasn't. And then to what Deanna said earlier, then emergency help gets brought in at the last minute, which doesn't need to happen. You know, we could foresee these things and create the support required or that would be helpful at the early stages so that that person is free to do the art that they do and the theater can help support how that gets implemented in a theatrical production. Um, I just have a couple things to say. Like, I think um, I agree with everything that a lot, a lot of everybody is saying is resonates. And because I've done a few shows where um, other non-theater collaborators have been brought in. And as a set designer, if they're a visual artist, it's usually ends up being my job to sort of unify or um, make sure everybody's talking to each other, basically. And, um, you know, it's, processes have always been maybe, have sometimes been frustrating uh, and sometimes been really great. The end result is always beautiful and nothing like we'd ever imagined if we didn't have those collaborators. And, I, it, you know, as frustrating as sometimes the processes are because we're so, I, like I know I am, can be set in my ways of how I want to work and how I like to work it's actually always kind of refreshing because it's like, it kind of opens my eyes like, well, why are we doing that? Even though we've always done it that way. Why are we doing that? Why are we working for 10 out of 12? like, you know, and why are we, you know, so um, I always find it kind of inspiring. It's frustrating and inspiring and it's all good. <laughs> so, but I just wanted to say that. Yeah, I am one of the people you guys are talking about. <laughs> I came in without any theater background, no training in theater. Um, I have a background in film and that was a particular reason why I had a departure and stay away from film because of the, the rigid structure and the practice that film recites in, you know, it, 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 it um, gave me very little room uh, to navigate the fluidity and, um, and redefining practice and redefining the creative container, right? So that's kind of like, I didn't know I was going to theater, but I, I was just kind of called into it as, um, as like an interdisciplinary, uh, interdisciplinary fluid uh, creative container in life performance, life art kind of a context, right? That's kind of how I saw theater was uh, for me in my entrance. So I'm one of the person who had no practice, doesn't know what stage managers are, uh, doesn't know the protocols, got called in, bring crazy technology, start projecting work and being uh, as a visual artist, media artist, or like interdisciplinary artist, uh, doing electronic music and stuff like that. Um, but you know, I, what I find is that when working in life context, people are there for a very um, visceral reason that I can feel that people brought their heart and soul into the work, uh, that it just leaves so much more that welcomeness and kindness in, in the work we do, because we're always in, in, in physical, in, physical presence, right? In person, talking and discussing and working together. So I find that is a really great entrance, you know, as, as human being working together. Um, so I almost feel like for me, 
I think of it as like, you know, again, talking about decolonized practice is that, you know, how do we come back to the arts as creative human working together physically, right? That's kind of how I see theater is. So I try not to assume um, and to be presumptuous about what people know. Um, and it really comes down to, you know, the producer um, and production manager, whoever has the power to, to manage people. I think that's very important because I did hit certain nails where, you know, um, the, the PM, uh, TD, didn't, didn't know that a coder or a person working with technology doesn't understand theater, uh, that doesn't know what even, you know, what, how to write a tech writer. Um, and to, to check in and making sure that they know what they're talking about, ask the right question. Um, that would have um, put a lot of fire, actually, that, that prevented a lot of fire, actually. Yeah, and um, so again, coming back to whoever is person in charge, you know, not assume, but really check in to see, like, we are just human working together. What are the missing pieces that we actually just can address and talk together? I think that's very, very important and not assume, like, what theater practice really means for everybody to, you should know this, you know? Yeah, it's really about it's really about that support, like the support that you don't know that you need. A lot of, um, you know, uh, folks that are new to theater don't know what they don't know. So uh, recognizing that and and um, understanding how we can help and what we can do to to make to help people succeed is really important, I think. Um, going back to Carmen, to something that you said before. Um, just wondering if anybody else has been in sort of the position where you feel like you weren't uh, qualified to represent a community or a culture. Um, and if, you know, if it happened before your contract signing, if you decided not to sign the contract or uh, if there was any criteria that you uh, thought about before you signed the contract. I recently did actually. Um, it was for a dance piece, an Indian dance piece. And they had reached out multiple times. And it was when I was working on other projects. So I was like, oh, I don't think I'm qualified for this. Like, I really don't know anything about Indian culture. Um, so I was like, no, but then they kept on emailing. They're like, we really want to work with you. And I had to be like, okay. and then I finally responded. I'm like, I, I really don't think I'm qualified. I don't know those nuances. And I think you, like you should give that space to an Indian designer. Um, but they did make a case that like they are here in Toronto and they want to work with indigenous designers and they want to just diversify their group because they are here and they want to give gratitude for being able to make art here. So it was along the lines of gratitude. And I was like, I understood, I was like, I understood in concept. I said, okay, I totally can see this, why we would work together. Of course, this makes sense. So I've, I agreed to it. I was actually supposed to go up this past May, but obviously it's not happening anymore. Um, but through the design process, it was really, really hard. Um, the amount of research, um, like you were saying, Karma, Carmen, with like just the way the, the fabric is folded and the different prints and the colors. I mean, it was, there's like, I know I, there's an idea around it because of how much I know within my own culture and what these materials and fabrics and movement and everything means the way things are done. So there's like in concept and theory, you kind of understand, but once you're in there, there's just all these tiny little details where I would have 
no idea about it. So then it just became really, really important for me mm-hmm. to be at every single rehearsal that I could be at and just sit there with like the directors, creative producers and just listen to everything, write it all down, just listen, 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 and uh, then go home and research it and Google what's this, yeah. what's that. Um, and it was, it was very interesting, but very, very challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And I almost feel like that is just one layer, at least in my experience in that show, the layer of getting the consultants and the cast feedback and, and we have um, the choreographer giving a lot of feedback, but that was just the first layer. Then we had rehearsal and then somebody would just come to me and say, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a wedding in Delhi and you're missing this piece of textile that we, since, you know, since I was little, we've always had it there. And I'm just like constantly like, how? I, there was no way I could know that, you know? But um, yeah, I guess what, it, that would make you feel like you're definitely not qualified for that. And I think we just have to be humble about it, you know? I've also been offered, you know, shows that are indigenous in the past. And I, I think at some point I considered it. And even though the last one I did say, I, I happily would mentor an indigenous designer if, if, they, if you guys want to do that, but I would not take on a project like that now knowing what I know. I, I think that'll be very hard. And also just like giving, giving space for people to, to do the, the work that they're good at, right? Like why would I take that space anymore? I have early on in my career, I uh, took all the work that I was offered because I was just trying to eat and uh, but uh, learned so much because of it and learned, uh, learned um, a lot about um, uh, what I didn't know, what, it, what a privilege it was to learn the things that I didn't know, to be exposed to things that I had never been exposed to before. Um, but as I got older, um, uh, it's funny, it first came as a suggestion or um, to think about what I say yes to and, and what, um, what I'm not prepared to do or what is not, this is not a show that I should be designing um, as, a, as a white woman. And um, I remember it first came with an idea of age and and the idea of making space for those that are younger and then um and then it came you know in my own um feeling about my artistic practice that this is not this is not my show this is not a show that this is a show that somebody else should be designing not me and so there have been times much like what carmen said and and much like what sage said um where I would say no and someone would come back and say, and I would say, but why me? Like, why, what do I have to add to this room? I have a lot to learn from this room, but I don't think that you're producing this show for, for my learning. And so, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if I would say no and someone would come back and we would have a discussion and sometimes that discussion um, led to me participating in the production and sometimes it led to me um, leaving the production because there was nothing there that said to me, 
um, like, what do I have to add to this conversation? Do you know what I mean? So it's an interesting um, journey um, to go on, especially when you sort of step back from being a young emerging designer and just trying to make a living to going, what is the voice, you know, because as a young emerging designer, I never felt like I had any voice. I was just trying to light a show. And then um, is my voice important here or is somebody else's voice important here um, or collaboration or idea? And so, um, yeah, um, stepping away and, and, and um, making space for other people because I think that in this white theater world that we have in Canada, um, uh, people just hire these people that they know. And so it's important to take a step back and make space. Yeah, giving space is so important. I, I had, um, I th this definitely happened to me uh, where I feel like I, I shouldn't take on a certain role, certain job. Um, and what I, what I do is that first I'll refer to the people I think that should be, should, should be most suitable artists to take on these this roles. And then they, sometimes they'll get back to me saying, well, these people are not experienced enough. They, they don't know this software or blah, blah, blah. And I go, okay, counter offer is that I can be the mentor on this project, um, but this person still take the lead on the design uh, that you can just pay me my mentor fee. And then they, they, so I'm, they're still centering on their voices rather than mine uh, to whatever the project is most suitable for. Um, and then, or sometimes I feel like it's actually, I'm the suitable person, but it, there's still, still a, a gap needs to be filled and I ask the company to hire a cultural advisor because I feel that I won't be comfortable moving forward with the project with a proper cultural advisor that represents that culture. So yeah, that's kind of my experience. Thanks everyone. Um, I guess my next question is um, centered around working with uh, your fellow designers and uh, how we can all collaborate better together. Um, and, and also specifically if you're a BIPOC designer, if there's anything uh, that you would like white, your white colleagues to know. Um, yeah. Um, I don't have anything specific about what my white um, colleagues should know, but one way of working and people who worked with me know this, Michelle and Deanna and Kim, um, is I like to, I started to get directors to meet all of us together, all the designers all together at every meeting, as opposed to individual meetings with the director and the set designer to the director and the costume designer. A, it prevents the director having to have the conversation five times. And it means we can all sh learn the play together, share our research, share any issues we're having, um, listening to each other. It's one thing I really love that Sage said, and talking to each other to create, and I, to create a show together, as opposed to it being individual and, you know, um, and, it's, and I, it's something that started in indie theater, you know, working with Fujen and stuff like that. I started doing with Nidalee Aquino. And it's something I have brought to uh, other directors, white directors for lack of a better term, uh, working at the larger theaters and even in opera. I've tried to in integrate that into my process of working with people because it's a really great way to that everybody is sharing. Why are we sharing? We should be sharing more. 
if anything. Um, and as designers, we do a lot of the visual research. And I think sharing that would, would benefit everybody. Um, so it's the same thing as first day of rehearsal, sharing that research with the cast, getting their input um, as well. And I find that's been really fruitful. The designs that we come up with together are much more interesting than ones that where I'm, uh, either director's not willing to work that way or other designers aren't working, working that way and I'm working on my own. It's not as fun either, so. Yeah, design jams are the best. They're like the best part of the process. Um, and I like to include that also digitally. So always having like a Google Drive with everyone can have their own folder, but I like you can like snoop about the other folders and be like, ooh, I wonder what costumes are doing right now. Or like, I wonder what sound is doing. And it only works if everyone uploads, which yeah. is often a challenge. But uh, as a method of working, it's just so much, I agree, it's so much more fruitful and also enjoyable as a process. Like particularly like something where you like get together over a beer and everyone has their notes and their laptops and you like really start to like dig deep into like the meat of the story too. Yeah, you're sort of learning the piece together, understanding it together. And, and sometimes you're, and your ideas start to come together sooner rather than first day of rehearsal or tech week, which is like the last possible time you want to be starting to come together. Too late. Um, <laughs> way too late. Yeah, and like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, I love that when you do those, you, you feel close enough to your, you know, collaborators to speak your mind openly, yeah. Yeah. which is like a, a sort of a silly fear that I, I'm still getting rid of as like a younger person. It's like, it's hard to know that you, you know, you can comment on anything. And I think we have to all just be open to that from everybody. Because otherwise, why are we all in the room? Yeah. Well, we're telling, we're telling stories. And so we can't do that in silos. We should start telling the story together from the very beginning. And then we get to add the people, the, the performers, you know, we get to start off. Um, if things change, which I always believe they always do, they always change quite, quite a great deal. As soon as you add performers into the room, we have ideas, you have to be open to the new ones, but, but that, you don't, we don't tell five stories from five different design disciplines and a director, you know, like leading, you know, I, I just feel like we're, we should all be telling the same story. So sometimes when I haven't been invited or, you know, now that we're all doing Zoom all the time, um, this idea of us not being able to get together seems crazy to me now, um, especially because none of us have jobs anyways, so might as well. But, but that but that there have been times where I'm not involved in an early set design conversation. And then I have to say, tell me the pictures in your head. Tell me those things that you see or, or, you know, a costume designer hasn't started to sketch anything yet, but tell me like, do things flow? Are things, you know, like what is the atmosphere that we're talking about? And then, then you can start jumping off but we should all be telling this story together from the beginning. I mean, I don't know if this is a crazy idea and nobody can afford it, but before we get into the rehearsal hall, when we start the design process, wouldn't it be nice if all the storytellers got to have meetings together? Meaning the people who either say the words or dance the piece or whatever, 
sing the song, but that because I think sometimes performers feel like things are placed on them when yeah. we get in the room. Here's the clothing that you'll wear, even though so many of the faces I'm looking at right now would say, this is the initial inspiration, but let's talk, right? Like, wouldn't it be so great if we all got to have meetings together ahead of time to talk about, so then design and perform and feel like separate things, you know, that, and, and those conversations, Cami, that you were talking about earlier, about hopefully being able to meet people earlier or have a conversation. Well, wouldn't it be interesting if they also heard this idea about, you know, I, I often on first days of rehearsal never say anything, or sometimes I say a bunch because I'm a lighting designer. Sure, we can have a concept, but unless we're working, unless that's the direction that rehearsal goes in, I'm happy to throw all of that out the window and just respond to, to what happens in the room. But wouldn't it be nice that we all have this idea of the first day and how we start to tell the story. We're on the same page on the first day that we step into the rehearsal hall, but that we all have pre-production and everyone's pre-production sort of starts together. That's utopia. That's never going to happen. <laughs> I realize whatever. Well, and like with, Inclusivity, one of the shows I worked on, the actors were also invited to the production meetings, um, which was really cool, and I hadn't seen before. And they didn't say anything, which was fine. But um, just by being there, there was like an increased sense of empathy because they were allowed into like our technical side of the world and could see how many pieces were all moving around them and how busy everything was. Um, so like more awareness and more knowledge like only can breed empathy in terms of like connecting with your performers and your performers connecting with you. I think what's great about having these, you know, these designer jams or these, you know, all-inclusive production meetings early on is that you develop the language of the show and you develop trust in everyone else because I find certainly, and even now, but, um, uh, certainly when I was starting out, there were times when I, there might be something that came up in a production meeting that I'd feel slightly uncomfortable about, or I wasn't sure like, is, could that be misconstrued the wrong way? Or could someone take offense to this choice? But I felt like, well, I'm the sound designer. This, this is not my domain. I don't do costumes. I don't do X, Y, Z department. So, um, you know, I, it's not my place to, I don't want to step on anyone's toes. But instead of thinking of it that way in terms of infringing on someone, this is my discipline and this is your discipline, it's again coming back to the central idea of what story are we trying to tell and who are the people who are the people that we're trying to support. And um, I was working on a, on a factory show a number of years ago and we were in Tech Week and I was sitting next to Louise um, Gunan who's doing lighting. And there's a cue that just wasn't lining up for us and she's like, um, tell me if this is if this is you know infringing but uh, here's a suggestion if you like move the timing of this cue i was like oh man that's brilliant like i would not have thought of that and she's like you know you don't have to listen to me and i was like are you kidding me like you've sat next to the best sound designers for several decades now i think you know a bit more about sound than i do quite frankly um and because it's about instinct and it's about impulse and that's what we are all that's the same language that we speak 
and that's what we're all hired for because of our instincts. And I think if we can trust each other in that, that some of the most beautiful collaboration can come out of that when you have respectful discussion and you know that it's coming from a place of generosity and it's not attacking anyone for what their choice is um, or what decision they made because sometimes we do things almost too rationally and there comes a time when if you can listen to your gut instinct and you feel comfortable then bringing that up being like hey is this landing the way that I think it is um, yeah then we could also mitigate or avoid a lot of emergencies down the road. Just because I think it bears repeating, that's all awesome. I think, I think in this time of pandemic that we should just go towards that utopia, right? We can create this new world. We can help to like not help but you know we, we can help advocate for that if that's how we want to work there's no reason why we can't so i think if the more of us say it and say no this is how we'd like to do it like screw those 10 out of 12s who likes doing 10 out of 12s it's not fun <laughs> um and also just wanted to repeat uh, like as, as everyone had said earlier but mentorship i think it's really important like let's let's get more bums and seats not only on on stage, but like, you know, behind the table, so. Yeah, definitely, I agree. And I feel like um, just as a BIPOC uh, Latinx designer as well, I just would like to remind my, my white colleagues that we're still minority in the design world. And so I, I know that many of you are aware of this, but I am also just after all these conversations, I'm definitely committing to bringing assistance of artists of color into the table because we need more of those voices um, so that we don't have to like have that extra layer of effort every time we're again not navigating in a very very wide theater world constantly i think the there does definitely need to be more investment put into paid mentorships because that's one thing i can't afford an assistant um, on a regular basis um, so without those assistants getting grants or um, uh, professional development um, uh, grants. I can't, it's, it's very difficult to support them. I don't want them to work for free. Um, I try, you know, I can pay them, but I can't pay them probably what they're worth. Right. And I don't, I like to teach, but I can't always afford to. Um, so they're actually, we don't have that sense that other than at the two festivals, um, that they, we don't really have a system of mentor assistantship or mentorship in Canada. Um, yeah, there's very few I, there's very few designers who can afford assistance that I know of. So, yeah. I I would say um, uh, I have on and off hired assistants for different uh, reasons, um, and I've made that part of my uh, practice. Um, it's I do offer up, and this is. It's because as a, a Canadian theater designer, you only make so much money and there are people who do reach out. So I certainly, um, I certainly open up my room, the room that I'm working in to anyone who chooses or wishes to observe it. Mm. And as long as they're willing to do that with respect to the room, I offer up any room that I've ever worked in, almost ever, to anyone who, who wants to come, what is it like to do this? What is it like to do that? Because I know as a young designer, 
remember the first time I worked, walked into a big room and I'd never done that before. So I certainly offer up, especially those big rooms. Um, I also offer up uh, the collaboration process and just auditing the sort of, you know, especially when we've worked with people we've worked with over and over and over again, and how you have this really easy kind of communication and then offering up the room where you've never worked with somebody before, you know, and allowing for that to happen because this country is not, does not support um, young emerging designers the way other countries that I have worked in do. It is a part of the process. Having assistants um, or associates in other countries is, is a, is not even a question. You know, we work at a certain level in a number of theaters in this country where there is no assistance for any of us outside of Sean Stratford and the COC and maybe the ballet, but I've never worked there. Um, but, um, but I've worked in other countries in the UK, in the United States, in the Czech Republic, um, in Hong Kong, where it's just a given, like that's a job because um, that's how... And so, so it's interesting. And, and, and I know Michelle and I have spoken about this and the board of ADC has spoken about just about mentorship in general. And Michelle's doing an amazing job starting on that road, but just like, how do we, money is the big thing and losing in Ontario, losing the theater Ontario grant that a number of people received for a number of decades. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was a little bit of money for someone to choose a designer that they wanted to work with or a few designers they wanted to work with. And it was really a huge loss here in Ontario. Um, There was also an amazing program that Obsidian Theatre also here in Ontario had for a number of years um, to pay uh, mentees to work with a mentor on, on a show from beginning to end. And it was an amazing program and, and it's just so unfortunate that that these programs in Ontario have ended. And I, I, I'm not sure about the programs that have existed in other provinces in the country. I'm sure in BC next to none, because you know, theater is not important in BC really. <laughs> it is to some, but to the general public. <laughs> Um, but you know, it's, it's unfortunate and, and nobody wants, anytime someone comes to observe in the room that I'm working in, I never give them work to do. Um, that just seems you can't, as Cami said, you can't ask people to work for free ever, you know, in my opinion, but. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I was thinking about the system that's created this, you know, and, um, it's, I, 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 I was saying that I don't have the theater training but I got to understand the kind of uh, theater training that everyone goes through from working, especially working with my assistants and help certain people behave a certain way. And I was like, where did you learn that? They were like, well, that's what theater school taught me to do, that you have to fake it until you make it. And we have to say certain things that, you know, that you don't actually mean to, to say. Um, and um, I started thinking about that, the, this kind of colonial training in theater that, you know, that brought up so many people, designer, artists to, you know, to work a certain way, think a certain way, condition in this system, this like structure, right? And it's essentially um, patriarchal and white supremacist, right? And we're all in this together. Like we're all affected by it in some way. Um, if any, you know, you know, there's so many things that I want to say to my white colleagues. If anything, I would say that we're all in this together. 
um, that the only difference between you and I uh, is that I am forced as a person of color to go through the homework of, of facing racism on a daily basis and with my lived experience with no choice, right? Um, unless I don't go on the street, right? Um, the, you know, so there is this barrier and the gaps between our understanding of each other in so our different lived experiences and uh, how do we help each other to, to, you know, overcome and actually fill those gaps, right? And that essentially, there are certain things that there are invisible trauma that is caused by that. And like, for example, I can hide my queerness, right? By not identifying myself as queer, but I, I can't turn myself white and to be like, hey, I'm white, you know? That, that is something that we can shape shift with our identity. Um, and so constantly walking with this body, with color, it's interesting that to a point, sometimes, you know, the this concept of like, you feel your body is defected by, by the system. And how do we, you know, in a way to uh, heal from that, this, this, this voice that's overarching this whole time. And I think uh, for, in order to do that, it needs, it needs all, all, of us, all of us working together and for white people to give space and, and to understand that, you know, it takes a bit of time to come up with trauma. And it's a lot of trauma invisible. Sometimes we don't even realize until, you know, a group of people getting together. It's like, whoa, what is this idea of, you know, uh, what is a, a, a white, body's, white, white body supremacist? You know, what does that concept mean? How does, how does racism land in the body in a certain way? So, um, so yeah, that's kind of just want to, I just want to say that, yeah, it's, that we're really in this all together and having these discussions are very helpful to help us move forward. Yeah. Thank you, Sammy. Does anybody else have anything they want to say before I move on? Um, so I'm going to ask my last question of you all. Um, thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, so finally, my final question is about the title of the panel. So it's uh, supporting BIPOC cast with your design. So what are some ways that we can support our performers um, with our design, the ones that we work with every day? Um, listening to them, <laughs> getting their input. Um, like I said, I don't think it's done enough. I don't think enough designers do that. Um, it's something, it's something I've noticed, especially at theaters, I've, you know, things, things are changing faster, slightly faster. Uh, in opera, it's, there's this funny thing that happens with designers. They are there's this hierarchy and there's this preciousness that designers are treated with. And I really want to break that down. So when I've worked with larger opera companies, it's the first thing I try to do. Um, even as simple as asking the cutter their opinion. Even as simple as asking the performer in a fitting, are you comfortable? Um, and I like getting input both from my crew and from the performers. Um, I still make the decision, but I like getting their input because uh, I think it's important too. And sometimes it has altered my, what, I've, what I've designed because I think there's always, there's always, always a way to be respectful and collaborative and still achieve the design you want. And I think um, that's something that is, um, that's how I would like to support um, performers I'm working with. And I would add to that um, what you said before, Camille, as well, about researching. Like the moment you get a contract, just get familiar with who your cast is. 
and something I didn't do for the longest time, but try to represent that race as much as you can in your sketches as a designer. Yeah. Um, so that they don't feel invisible, right? And then consider all the, all the possibilities that that body is going to bring into, into the stage. Um, and also just create a safe space for them in the feeding room. Mm-hmm. And if I may add to that, it'll be, it'll be amazing if, if one day we can also have more people of color in their costume shops as well, so that we don't, you know, end up feeling like we're just, again, one minority fighting against one culture only. Echoing listening as being very important, but also if there are issues like standing with your, your BIPOC performers um, so that it doesn't, if there are like institution, institutional issues, it doesn't feel like you're like, oh, yep, that sucks. Uh, and they have to deal with it. But like being in that fight with them and willing to because like it's it's scary for anyone to to um go against a producer or have these conversations because there's always a fear of like being as as cj said earlier being labeled like difficult um or or um not getting hired in the future but like being willing to like put that yeah, put put your money where your mouth is and, and, and stand with your performers. Something I find that's sort of unique to the theater process, or I guess uh, dance and opera compared to film, let's say, is how much contact you actually have with the performers and the cast. And I've started to try to make it more of a priority to, even though we're all busy and we're often juggling multiple contracts, to find certain days in the week where I stick around during lunch or break and talk to people when they're not, you know, at work or on, on the clock. Because people, they, um, they loosen up and they relax in a way that they don't, they often don't feel that um, they have the capacity to in rehearsal because we're all professionals at that point. Um, but it's even that act of just sitting there listening to what conversations are happening in the break room and then people feel more comfortable approaching you than um, during tech week if they have an issue. Um, just because they've seen your face, you're not just a blob sitting at the back with your computer screen during wow. tech. It's a person that they've seen over and over again and that, who seems more approachable. So, yeah. I'd like to echo what Deanna says there too, because some of the disciplines have greater contact with performers, one-on-one contact with performers than others. And so I, it's a practice of mine to spend a lot of time in rehearsal Um, But to also have discussion about um, open discussion sometimes about an idea or whatever. Also because our rooms are incredibly vulnerable um, and making sure that there is room for that vulnerability, making sure that uh, much to what a number of people have said, listening is very important, not taking up space in the room, in the rehearsal hall, is in my opinion also incredibly important. Um, Performers are, if everything goes wrong in a night in front of an audience there, even in tech or even in rehearsal, um, it's it's a performer's face and a performer's, uh, the performers have to deal with that 
live and 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 we get to sit at the back of the house during a preview or during tech and try and fix it there's such a huge vulnerability when it comes to performers and making sure that you're that you leave space in the room but also that but also being a part of the process so that you are not uh this other that has come in sort of in the last couple of days of rehearsal and then you start in tech like how do you get to be part of this storytelling family then right you didn't you're going to impose something in tech that you weren't there for the process so it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because so much is discovered in rehearsal and i and i also realized that for some of my colleagues sitting here well, they're in the costume shop for 12 hours a day, so they're not getting the opportunity to sit in rehearsal and be part of that. I totally, I totally understand that. But from the job that I do, that's not the place that I need to be. So as much as I can be in rehearsal and be part of the storytelling group and also leaving space and not taking up space in the rehearsal room um, is really important, I think. Um, I might add to this all, which is like all such wonderful, wonderful points, especially about listening. Um, one thing I really try to be aware of is, is that like a lot of culturally specific work is asking people to live trauma of their own or their ancestors or whatever that might be. And just to come with like a full awareness of that into those moments where you where you know, part of our work is affecting that. Um, I think that's the kind of sensitivity that is really key to try to try to get an in on. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree on that. Yeah. I was thinking about like Rachel was saying to hold space for for that, for the trauma, for all this uh, thing that that's in the history and that is happening still now that we all carry uh, in you know as the baggage uh, you know that we have. And I was thinking, how do we because of lack of representation, um, there is this gap, right? And BIPOC actors, cast and performers are on stage living through those gaps and trying to fulfill, like kind of fill in those gaps. And it's a, it, it, it's a huge learning curve, right? And often you feel like you have to represent a certain group, you know, you're holding on this baton, holding on this torch in certain ways, or that anytime you might be you know, abandon or kick off the stage because, you know, of the system that doesn't support you. So when I work in a BIPOC kind of a community, I try to have those things in mind as the background, you know, but not let it take the foreground because also I'm trying to do the work of, you know, um, recognizing that we are human, like recognizing that this BIPOC artist also want to be artists as a human being and not being reduced to a certain label, right? How do we actually be, be an artist, not a bipod artist, you know, not a bipod designer, but just be good and share our good heart and our creativity the way that anybody can do. And those are the complexity or balance that we need to find, I think, to navigate this complex world that we are well going into. Yeah. Thank you, Sammy. Um, does anybody else have anything they want to say before we wrap up here? Well, thank you. Thank you all so much for giving us your time and your, your expertise and your stories. Um, 
look out for future discussions um, through the title block and uh, ADC. We're, we're going to keep the conversation going. Um, it's all really important work and we need to talk about it. Um, Michael? I'm here. <laughs> uh, God, yes, absolutely. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for uh, another, I mean, very important and fantastic discussion. I just, it was just such a great experience to, to witness that tonight. And I would uh, point everyone towards uh, thetitleblock.com where this discussion will be made uh, into an audio format and released uh, hopefully in the next couple of days. Um, that depends on a lot of things in my life right now, but that's okay. Um, I will get it out as soon as I can. Um, a reminder that I am just finishing up the rest of the interviews I've done in Vancouver. So uh, I'm, I'm just editing a conversation I had with Michael Whitfield, the former head of, of uh, lighting design at the Stratford Festival uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, so that'll be out soon as well. And uh, then I'll be collecting uh, a whole bunch of other names to start interviewing people for the next round, uh, hopefully starting in August. Um, so thank you once again for everyone for being here. Thank you for the uh, Associated Designers of Canada for um, uh, sponsoring this. And I should mention, I think it's important to mention that the ADC actually provided a stipend for people to be here. Is that correct, Michelle? That's right. It's a, it's a small honorarium. I wish it were more, but um, yes. Yeah. So it's also very important. I, unfortunately, the title block is not an income generating uh, adventure. So everything is done uh, from the goodness of people's hearts. So I uh, thanks to the ADC for, for thinking of that and, and acknowledging people's efforts. Um, so thank you very much. We'll wrap it up there and uh, we'll see you next time on the title block live. Mm -hmm.